0: My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here at Oasis Church, and it's great to be with you today. Please uh, keep your Bibles open there to 1 Kings 17. That's where we will spend our time together. Now, let me begin by asking you a question Can you think of a time in your life when you had to trust someone? Can you think of a time in your life when you had to trust someone? Maybe it was a small thing. Uh, You're on a a school camp and you had to do the trust exercise. You know, we have to fall backwards and uh, trust that someone's going to catch you. Hopefully you had better mates than I did. Maybe it was a big thing. Uh, Maybe you jumped out of a plane and you had to trust that the instructor was going to pull the ripcord at the right time so you didn't fall to the ground and uh, smash into the earth. You literally put your life in the hands of that person. Now, the truth is, we do this in life more than we realize. Uh, We have to put our hands in someone's life, not just when we jump out of a plane, but when we get on a plane. We trust that the pilot is going to fly that plane safely. Uh, We do this when we get into a car. We trust that the the driver of the car is going to drive safely. We do this when we sit down for a meal at a restaurant. We trust that the chef has cooked the chicken enough. We put our trust in the hands of other people all the time. And the question that we'll be looking at this morning is what about God? Will we trust him? Will we put our lives into his hands? Now this is not just a churchy theoretical question. This is a pressing question for many of us. Many of us, uh, we're going through situations in life right now that are difficult. And we're wondering, can I trust God? Will God carry me through this situation? Maybe it's a, a, a difficult marriage, maybe a cancer diagnosis. Maybe it's financial pressure or wayward children we're wondering, can I trust God in the midst of this? Others of us here this morning, we're still working out, do I want to trust God at all? Do I want to put my life into his hands? Is he trustworthy? Is he even there? Can I trust God? This is the question that we're going to be exploring today because this is the question that's at the heart of the passage that we're looking at, First Kings chapter 17. Now, if you haven't been around uh, for the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series kind of working our way through the book of 1 Kings. We're spending seven weeks looking at the second half of the book. Uh, We covered the first half uh, last year at this same time. And we've called the series, The Life and Times of Elijah. Uh, Today, uh, we finally meet the prophet Elijah, He kind of bursts onto the scene suddenly and unexpectedly. Now, maybe you're wondering, why would we name the series after Elijah if he doesn't kind of show up until the third week of the series? Well, the answer is that the first two weeks that we've looked at so far, they've shown us why the message and the ministry of Elijah was so necessary, why it was so important. I mean, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we've seen that these were dark days, for the people of God, uh, the people of God had split into two separate kingdoms. There was the, the kingdom of Israel in the north, and there's the kingdom of Judah in the south. The kings that were ruling over these two kingdoms, they were not good or godly kings for the most part. Uh, they led God's people into idolatry, worshipping false gods, worshiping idols. And this was particularly true in Elijah's day. The king of the northern kingdom, uh, kingdom of Israel in Elijah's day, was a man named Ahab. And Ahab, we're told in chapter 16, was the most corrupt king so far, that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of the kings that had come before him. And unfortunately, uh, behind this evil king was an evil wife. Uh, Ahab married a foreign woman named Jezebel, and she was not a nice lady. We're going to see next week that she uh, slaughtered uh, some of God's prophets and priests. She kind of led the the promotion of the worship of Baal in Israel. Baal was this kind of idol, false god, foreign god. She was the one leading the charge for Baal to be worshipped in the kingdom of Israel. And we're told that Ahab, think about who this is, the king of God's people worshipped Baal. He built altars to Baal. These were dark, dark days in the people of God. Now, what do you need uh, when you're stuck and lost in darkness? Well, you need a light. And this is kind of what happens today when Elijah bursts onto the scene. He comes dramatically, he comes suddenly, he comes unexpectedly, like someone flicking a switch in a dark room. I mean, did you notice in the reading how abruptly Elijah arrives? We're not given much information about who he is. Uh, We're told his name, Elijah, which means Yahweh is my God. We're told where he comes from, Tishbe in Gilead. But that's about it. Uh, Elijah just kind of bursts onto the scene. But he comes, and this is the point, with a very important message. Uh, Elijah comes with a message from God. God. And this is why I think we're not given too much detail about Elijah, because Elijah himself is not really the point. The point is Elijah's message from God. And this is really what the ministry of Elijah shows us, that the days were dark, but God was not silent. God was not absent. God was at work. God had a message for his idolatrous people, and he was going to deliver it through the prophet Elijah. God was going to call his people back to himself. God was going to call his people to trust him. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Will God's people trust him? Will they listen to him? Will you trust God? Will you believe his promises? Will you listen to his word? Is what we're going to be exploring together today. And we're going to look at this chapter just under two simple headings. Trust God for today, verses 1 to 16, and trust God for tomorrow, verses 17 to 24. Let's begin, firstly, with trust God for today. Now, the first thing that Elijah does is he delivers a message to King Ahab. He very bluntly, very boldly says this to him. Now, we don't know if this was in the palace. We don't know if he kind of ran into him in the street, but this is what he says to him. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And so Elijah announces to King Ahab a drought. He says there's not going to be any rain in the next few years. Now, how nice was the rain on Friday that we got after just a few months, I think it was, of not having rain? They're not going to have rain for years. Now, Elijah's not just kind of making this up. This is not just a random announcement. This is actually a direct challenge to Baal, the false god, the idol that Israel had been worshipping. You see, Baal was believed to be a god of fertility, a god who, who gave life, who gave rain and agriculture and crops. And so when Elijah announces this drought, this is a direct challenge to Baal. He's kind of saying, you're about to see exactly what Baal can do which is nothing when he's faced with the true living God. It's a direct challenge to Baal. This is also the fulfillment of a warning. You know, God had said many years earlier to his people, if they turn away from him, if they go and worship other gods, and he said this in Deuteronomy 11, that he would shut the heavens so that it will not rain. This warning that God had given his people hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, it's now becoming a reality. The rain's about to stop, the drought's about to come, and this is devastating for the people. Now we might expect that the story to kind of show us the, the, the consequences of this drought on the nation of Israel, but the story doesn't kind of zoom out, it actually zooms in. And it zooms in on Elijah. And it shows us God's care and concern for his prophet. Now you can imagine that Elijah was not very popular in Israel at this time public enemy number one. You can imagine Ahab wanted to get his hands on Elijah. And so God tells him to go and hide in the wilderness. Now I've uh, been to the wilderness around the Jordan River and let me tell you there's no Woolworths out there. There's no Aldi. There is not much of anything out in the wilderness. And the question is how is Elijah going to survive out in this wilderness? Look at what God says to him. Verse 4. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Now, I can imagine Elijah said, come again, Lord. What now? You know, we have um, Uber Eats, uh, the food delivery service, but this is kind of next level. If you can kind of work out a way to get ravens to deliver food, that'd, that'd be profitable. I'm sure you don't have to pay them very much. This was not common in that day. This was not normal. See, the point is that God is inviting Elijah to trust him, to trust him with his very life. Now, what does Elijah do? Well, he believes God's word. He trusts God's promise. He goes into the wilderness and God provides for him. Look at verse 6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, just I want you to notice that when God provides for his prophet, Meat is on the menu. Just, that's what's in the text. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> just a quick note on the, the ravens. Uh, if you're not a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian, and you're thinking, well, I'm just not sure about this ravens thing. It seems a little bit far-fetched. I would simply say to you, if there is a God who made all things who created all things by his word, if there is a God who sustains all things, rules over all things, then it's not a big thing for him to direct some ravens. It's not beyond him to work in this way or in any way that he chooses. This doesn't mean that God will always work in this way or or even ever work in this way again. But God can work in this way if he chooses to. And God works in this way here because this is a special moment in salvation history. Uh, Elijah is God's uh, special person, his chosen spokesperson. And God chose to preserve him in this special way. Now, besides, the, the ravens aren't really the point. The point is that God provides for Elijah and Elijah trusts God to provide for him. And we see this same lesson in what happens next. Uh, eventually, because there's been no rain on the land, the the brook that Elijah's been drinking from, it dries up and and Elijah is forced to move on. God says to him, verse nine, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, why would God direct uh, Elijah to go to Zarephath, to to go to uh, Sidon? Seems like a pretty small, insignificant detail to us, but it's not. Uh, If you turn back to chapter 16, verse 31, you'll read there that Zarephath is the hometown, Sidon is the home region of none other than Jezebel, Ahab's wicked wife. God is sending Elijah into enemy territory. He is sending him to Baalsville. He's sending him to the Baal Belt. I I can keep going if you want. He's sending him into the heartland of Baal worship. Elijah's been hiding in the wilderness, but now he is going directly into enemy territory. And you can imagine, this would have been frightening for Elijah. And I'm sure that God's promise to Elijah maybe didn't uh, fill him with assurance. God said to him, I'm going to provide for you there through a widow. Now, uh, this is a little bit like when my toddler offers to help me mow the grass. It's cute, but I'm not expecting very much help. You see, sadly, in that day, widows had no one to care for them, no one to provide for them. They were really at the bottom of the food chain. And so if Elijah was dubious about ravens providing for him, he was probably equally as dubious about a widow being able to provide for him. And the point is that God is calling Elijah to trust him again. And what does Elijah do? Well, he goes to Baalsville, he, he goes to Zarephath, he, he meets this widow at the town gate, he asks us for some water, and when she goes off to get it, he says, oh, a loaf of bread would be wonderful as well, which is, you know, just an amazing request to, to make, this is the middle of a drought, she doesn't know Elijah, she has no money, she has very little food, in fact, she says to Elijah, I've only got a tiny little bit of flour left, a tiny little bit of olive oil. I'm going home right now to, to make one last batch of bread and then me and my son are going to die. Now you'd think when Elijah heard this, he'd go, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I'll, I'll find food somewhere else. Or, or let me help you find some food. But he doesn't. He says to the woman, verse 13, don't be afraid. Most repeated command in the Bible: Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have, and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. (laughs) It's shocking, isn't it? it? Seems cruel. It seems callous. It seems selfish. But of course, Elijah is not being cruel. He's inviting this woman to trust God. And he says to this widow, if she is willing to give up a little, then God will give her a whole lot more. Look at verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. This widow is being asked to trust God with her very life, to put herself, to put her life into God's hands. And what does she do? Well, verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. She believes, she trusts, she responds. Now, why would she do this? What might lead her to to respond in this way? Is she just kind of uh, taking a, a blind leap into the dark Not quite. You see, this woman has two things that that you and I have as well. There's two realities for this woman, which are realities for you and me as well. Firstly, death is staring her in the face. But secondly, a gracious promise has been made to her. Death is staring her in the face, but a promise has been made to her. And friends, this is true for you and for me. Death is staring all of us in the face. Now, we don't like to think about it. We like to avoid it as much as possible, especially in our day. But the reality is that death is staring each of us in the face. But the truth is, God has also made a gracious promise to us. Uh, Through the work of his son, through the testimony of his word, God has promised to us in Christ eternal life, salvation, if we will trust in him. God has promised us hope beyond the grave. And the question for all of us in this room, the question for every person in this world is, will we listen? Will we trust God? Will we believe His promise? This is effectively what it means to be a Christian. It means to trust God. It means to believe His promise. It means to put your whole self into His hands. To put all of your weight onto God and His Word. Reminds me a bit of the story of uh, Robert the Bruce. If you've seen Braveheart, you're familiar with Robert the Bruce. He was the king of the Scots in the 1300s, so a long time ago. Uh, And he was eating uh, breakfast one day as an an old man, and he realized that he was coming to the end of his life. He didn't have long left to live. He he said to his uh, family gathered around the breakfast table, my master is calling me. And so he asked his younger daughter to get uh, the family Bible and to, to bring it to the breakfast table. And he asked, to, uh, using his kind of old English, uh, to cast me up the eighth of Romans. You know, in other words, to open up the Bible to Romans chapter 8. And his eyes had failed him at this point in his life, but his memory had not, and he began to recite the eighth chapter of Romans. And he got to the end uh, of the chapter, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when he'd finished reciting these verses, he ordered his daughter to to set his finger on the passage. And he said, I die believing in these words. And that's what it means to trust God, to put all your weight onto his promises. And this is what this widow does. She trusts God. And God delivers her we read there that the jar of flour in verse 16 the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry and so two stories of God providing God providing for his prophet Elijah and God providing for this pagan widow outside his family what did not know him and yet she responds in faith and God provides for her And isn't this the same thing that Jesus taught us to do as well? You know, we just recited the Lord's Prayer, didn't we? Do you remember that line in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. It's this acknowledgement that God is our provider. This is why, you know, if we're believers, when we sit down to eat, this is why we pray before our meal not just because this is what we've always done and you know, this is just a ritual. Now we pray because we're acknowledging that God is our provider, that God ultimately gives us our daily bread. Everything we have is from Him. And so we are to trust God for today. But I guess the, the question is, well, what do we do when it seems like God has forgotten us. What do we do when it seems like God doesn't care about us? And this leads us to our second point. We've seen trust God for today, and, and, and what we see secondly is that we are to trust God for tomorrow. You know, at one level, it'd be nice if the story ended here. This woman, far from God, comes to know God, she trusts God, and God provides for her. that's not always how life works, is it? And sadly uh, for this woman, tragedy strikes. Her son becomes sick, and eventually he dies. Now, what a a terrible situation. This uh, widow had been trusting God. She she believed the promise of God, and now it seems like God has pulled the rug out from underneath her, struck her where it hurts the most. I mean, what's the, the point of this tragedy? What's the message? Obey God and he'll hurt you? Take him seriously and he'll strike you? That's the way that the widow interprets what's happened. She says, verse 18, she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now put yourself in her shoes. You can feel her grief and her sadness, can't you? She's saying is this how God works? Now at one level, uh, we know that God is sovereign over life and death. That God has every right to take what he has given. This is what Job says. Uh, remember the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But at another level, we empathize with this woman. We understand where she's coming from. It's my guess that many of us in this room, we have thought what she's thinking. We have felt what she's feeling. She's heartbroken. Why would God do this to me? And Elijah seems perplexed about this as well. He doesn't seem to have many answers for this woman. And so he does. The only thing that he can do, he cries out to God for this little boy's life. He carries the boy upstairs and he he lays him down. And then Elijah kind of lays himself on the boy three times. Not exactly clear why he does this. Some commentators talk about um, him transforming life and warmth to the boy, but it's it's not clear. He then cries out to God, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Now, There's no precedent for this in the Old Testament. Elijah here is asking God for a miracle. He knows that God is the living God, and so he asks for God to give life to this boy. And we read there in verse 22, The Lord heard... Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And so Elijah had carried this lifeless body uh, up to his room, and he now carries down uh, a living child, and he returns him to his mother. He says to her, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. What an amazing gift for this widow. What an amazing miracle. But the question is why? Why did God do it? Why does God restore this boy's life? Did, did, did he feel bad for the widow? Did he change his mind? I mean, why does he do it? The answer, it seems, is that God restored this boy's life to show Elijah, to show this widow, to show those in her region, to show us in our generation that he's not just the God of today. Is also, the God of tomorrow. That He not only gives us what we need for today, but He can take care of our future for tomorrow. That He can even secure our future beyond the grave. See, of course, we know that the Bible is a unified story, and we know that this story is pointing us to the ultimate story. This passage gives us just a taste of God's power to give life, and this is really the point of why Jesus came. You see, it's only in the life and the ministry of Jesus that we see God's life giving power and all its glory. You know, Jesus did not just arrive on the scene like Elijah as a man of God, Jesus came into the world as a man who is God. And when Elijah had to plead with God to give this boy's life back, Jesus simply speaks and the dead are raised. In fact, there's this time in Jesus' ministry when he came across a widow whose only son had died. Now what did he do? Luke 7 tells us, he simply says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the boy sat up and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus is showing us that he has God's power to give life in the face of death. That we can trust him for today and we can trust him for tomorrow. Now of course, the the reason that we can trust Jesus so totally, so fully, it's not simply that Jesus in his ministry raised people from death. I mean, the truth is that the little boy in in 1 Kings 17, the the boy in Luke 7, Lazarus, whom Jesus raised later, all of them went on to die again. You see, they needed something more, and we need something more as well. And this is what Jesus came to give us. This is what Jesus came to do for us, because Jesus himself died and was raised to life. Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, and was raised to life again. Not just earthly, mortal life. See, Jesus didn't die again. He was raised to eternal, lasting life, resurrection life. And this is what Jesus came to give to us. This is why Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, I am the living one, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus holds the keys of death. And if you put your trust in him, he opens the door through death into life. I read this week, drugs don't defeat death. Diet doesn't defeat death. Discipline doesn't defeat death. Only Jesus defeats death. And the question is, in light of God's life-giving power, will you trust him? Will you rely on him? Will you give yourself to him totally and completely like this widow did? Now you might say, well, it's easy for her. She was given a sign. Her her boy was raised from the dead. But God hasn't dealt with the issue that I'm facing, the trouble that I'm dealing with. I mean, if God was to do something miraculous like that in my life, well, of of course I would believe. Anyone would believe after something like that. But it's not true. You know, Jesus said in Luke 16, even if someone did come back from the dead, most people would still not believe. You see, we don't need more signs from God. We need to respond to what God has already said. We need to respond to what God has already done for us in Jesus And so if you're not a Christian, will you respond to God? Will you trust God for the first time today? Will you turn to Jesus and receive what he offers? For those of us who are Christians, those of us who have gone all in with Jesus, those of us who are are trusting him, this passage is a call to keep trusting him. To keep trusting him for today and to keep trusting him for tomorrow. Even when disappointment and difficulty rattle our trust. Even when grief and heartache shake our confidence. Maybe you're going through that right now. You're going through something and you're wondering if you can trust God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ stands in the middle of history as a reminder, as a promise as an assurance that you can, that your pain will not have the final say, that God has not abandoned you, that God has not forgotten you, that God can be trusted because he has dealt with our ultimate enemy. And because of Jesus, because of his life-giving resurrection, we can trust God for today and we can trust him for tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you for the promises that you've made to us in your word. Help us, Lord, to stand upon them, to believe them, to trust you even when the circumstances of our life tell us not to. Help us, Lord, to to look at Jesus, to see his life, his death, his resurrection as the final definitive proof that you are for us and not against us. And help us, Lord, to take our stand upon Jesus, to put all our weight onto him, to trust you, Lord, for today and to trust you for tomorrow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.